Turn your Bibles this evening to Acts chapter 15. Our text is Galatians 2, but we are going to start in Acts chapter 15. Last Sunday evening, we discussed the, from Acts chapter 13 how Antioch was a missionary church. They were happy to see those shot out by the Holy Spirit of God, even when it was Paul and Barnabas, two of the leading, leading teachers in their church, if not the two primary teachers in their church, and how we, if we're going to be an Antioch-like church, are going to need to desire the same kind of work that God would do here, to send out from our midst those who will be used of God for a broader gospel work even than the one here in Minneapolis. And we closed last Sunday evening sermon by pointing to some of the good news for those that were in Antioch, this great metropolis, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, an incredibly prestigious place, a very diverse place, that we saw at the end of Acts chapter 14, in verse 26, that Paul and Barnabas sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. So even though the church at Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas out to do missionary work, Paul and Barnabas came back and dwelt with them for a long time with the disciples. And then we cross the chapter line. And listen to Acts 15 and verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren. Now let me pause there. This on a map is not actually going down from Judea because they were going north. Um, Antioch of Syria was far north of Judea and from Jerusalem, but because from Jerusalem's perspective, everything was going down. Everything was going downhill from Jerusalem, they say, going down from Judea. And these people taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So place yourself again in Antioch. There is a thriving church. It is growing. It is being discipled. And it is primarily uh, constituted of Gentiles, people who are not circumcised, people who are not keeping the ceremonial customs of the Old Testament law. And in the middle of this diverse church with some great teachers, including Paul and Barnabas, the Jews descend from Jerusalem, from Judea, the conservative Judaizer party, and immediately comes into this diverse Gentile-oriented church and says, whoa, hold on. Unless you are circumcised and unless you keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Time out, Paul. Time out, Barnabas. Let's make sure we, our doctrine is right here. Notice verse 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. And we see in verse 5, even in Jerusalem, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. There were Pharisee believers in the Jerusalem church. 
And notice what they said, that it was needful, it was necessary to circumcise them. Who are they talking about here? The Gentiles, particularly in the Antioch church. And to command them to keep the law of Moses and the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. Friends, this, it, it, it would be no exaggeration to say that what is recorded in Acts 15 is one of the central events in the history of the Christian church. It would, be no, it would be no change outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension, outside of the Pentecost, right, the coming of the Holy Spirit. When we are talking about doctrinal matters that affected the life of the church over the last 2,000 years, this question in Acts chapter 15 is at the very core. I look around, I don't know that there are any Jews with us here today. This was a question about us about our ability to enter the church as Gentiles and whether we would be required to be circumcised in keeping with the Old Testament law and to keep the ceremonial law. Now, with that in mind, go back to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, Paul is disputing something, is confronting someone, the apostle Peter, about a matter very much connected to what we just read about in Acts chapter 15. In fact, I realized this as I was studying. There is a major dispute among conservative commentators about how Acts 15 and Galatians 2 play together. There are some who are convinced that Galatians 2 happened before Acts chapter 15. And the chronology is that Paul had dealt with this issue before and then it came up again and they needed to resolve it finally and conclusively in Acts chapter 15. Others believe that Galatians 2 and Acts chapter 15 are coming at the same time, describing events at the same time with Galatians 2 here, Paul's confrontation of Peter coming after this question had been settled in Acts 15. Well, I'm not going to be dogmatic. I personally think that Galatians 2 is being describing something that came before what has happened in Acts 15, but let each be convinced in his own mind. You can study that out and draw a conclusion for yourself. But whatever conclusion you draw, there is a commonality. There is a similarity here. This is a fight about the essential qualities of the gospel itself. And I want to direct your attention to verse number 11. But when Peter was come to where? to Antioch, to Antioch of Syria, this large metropolis where a diverse Gentile-oriented church was thriving. Now, why would Peter have come to Antioch? Peter went to visit churches before when they were just getting established. Remember, in Acts chapter 8, he went to Samaria to visit this church. It wouldn't be surprising that Peter would have come to see this Gentile church. And notice then the surprise we read when we say, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. The idea was he was under condemnation. He was doing wrong. You think of this clash of the titans, right? Of Paul standing up to Peter and publicly rebuking him in front of the entire church. At Antioch, this Gentile body of believers... What I want to look at tonight is what I am going to suggest to us this evening is a danger for churches 
not just Antioch, but all those like Antioch. For churches that are in a big city like we are, with a very diverse group of people that we are trying to reach, with all kinds of preconceptions and cultural prejudices and societal challenges that would be seen on any Sunday morning in our group here at Straight Gate Church. There is a danger that Paul is confronting, and my suggestion to you tonight that I hope we'll see as we work this out is it relates very much to the implications of the gospel itself. This is not merely a cultural issue. It's not merely a danger that we need to show a little more love around. It is cutting to the very heart of the gospel that we preach. And it's exactly why Paul confronted Peter to his face publicly. The title of the message tonight is Gospel Implications at Antioch. Gospel Implications at Antioch. And I want us to look tonight at how Peter's behavior at Antioch was threatening the implications of the gospel that he was preaching altogether. Let's start, first of all, with a dispute. A dispute. We've already started to touch on the nature of this dispute, but notice first that it was a theological dispute. The theological dispute was this. Can you become a Christian if you're not circumcised and if you don't keep the Old Testament ceremonial law? The theological dispute, if you were a Judaizer, think about what your logic would have been. Read the Old Testament. God's promise to his people was always through the channel of the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the one who was, yes, embracing all the Gentiles by his death on the cross, but that doesn't change the Old Testament picture that God's blessing is channeled through the Jews. The Jews, in fact, they would have been very familiar with the process by which a person became a Jew religiously. How did you become a Jew? You entered in. You, uh, you accepted the sign of Judaism, which was circumcision. You began keeping the ceremonial law of Judaism. It was an external observance that marked you out as one of God's covenant people. And so for them, very logically, they were not saying, oh, Gentiles can't become Christians. No, they had accepted that Gentiles could become Christians. But to them, to become a Christian first required them to align with the Jewish regulations. In other words, they would say, how does one become a Christian? Well, one come, becomes a Christian by believing in Jesus and by entering the Jewish framework of life. That was the theological dispute. But notice then that it became a practical dispute. Look with me in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 12. We learn, for before that certain came from James, this is the Lord's brother, who became a chief, if not the chief pastor of the church at Jerusalem, he did eat, Peter did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now, what's happening? Before the disciples come from James in Jerusalem, Peter is having free and full fellowship with the Gentiles. He's eating with them in the church. He's fellowshipping with them. He is entirely open to relationship with them. And what happens when the Judaizers come in, when those come who are Christians from James? Notice what? He withdrew and he separated 
himself. Now, why was this such a big deal? Well, we don't really understand fully Jewish culture. Jewish culture, for thousand, over a thousand years since Moses had given the law, Jewish culture marked out who was clean and who was unclean, who was in a relationship with God and who was outside a relationship with God. Everything they knew about was about, I am clean and you are unclean. In fact, this persisted even, of course, into the time of Christ. What, did, what, did, what were the, um, the Pharisees so careful about and persnickety about with Jesus? Why are you eating with sinners? How dare you go in with open, public, notorious sinners and eat with them? Why? Why was it such a focus on eating? Because we tend to think of eating as just, well, it's just a meal. I just, it's a food delivery system, not to the Jews. To the Jews, it was a fellowship. It was an intimacy. It was an acceptance. It was an embrace. If you invited someone into, their hospi- into your hospitality, you were connecting with them as a person. And so for the Pharisees to see Jesus going in with sinners was to be saying, you are embracing them. You are becoming morally unclean by them. We even see in Acts chapter 11, do you remember when the news comes to the church that Peter had gone into Cornelius' house and the door of repentance had been opened up to the Gentiles? Do you remember what the Christian Jews asked Paul, or excuse me, Peter, listen to what they said. When Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. We can't believe it. We have the vapors. You ate with people who are unclean. This was a significant practical issue. But not only that, it was then, it was a cultural issue. It was a cultural issue for them because for over a thousand years, this is how Jews had shaped their entire identity. We're clean and you're not. We're God's people and you're not. Why are we God's people? Because we're circumcised, because we keep the traditions, because we keep the ceremonial observances and that marks us out as special in God's sight. And so now for them, their mind would have been completely blown. Sure, Gentiles can come in and become a part of our church. They can become Christians. But the whole cultural issue about who's clean and who's unclean, we're not ready for that. We're not ready to pass that by. And friends, the same thing is true for us when we think about our own cultures. If you think of culture as just the kind of sets of beliefs and actions and habits that we as human beings use to organize our life, there's all kinds of culture that we don't even think about. My father used to talk about a family, probably some of you know them, who moved here from the south to Minnesota decades ago. And my dad always joked that their southern accent only got stronger the longer they were in Minnesota. It was like there was an identity to them, a cultural identity that they were going to ensure did not become dissipated by living in Minnesota. And so their southern accent just kept on getting stronger and stronger. And that was true of these Jews. It was unthinkable for them as a Jew to enter into a cultural transaction, a cultural relationship with a Jew that would require this kind of fellowship. Now, we should recognize 
in this, a danger that we have that is, that is apparent to all of us as Christians. It is the danger that our, our religious, if you will, actions and our habits become more influenced by culture than by Christ. This can be a real challenge for families. Families can be very good. Each family has its own culture. My family has a culture that's different than yours. It's just the fishbowl, if you will, that each of us grew up in. It's the water we swam in since the time we were a little child. And it just, we don't even think about it. This is just the way that the Magnuson family operates. And it's different than the Molitor family. And it's different than the Elkie family and the Lewis family. And we just each have these fishbowls. And the challenge is that we can grow up raising our children in a cultural fishbowl that looks like Christianity, but it's not rooted around a love for Jesus Christ. It's just cultural. It's just a cultural form of Christianity. We go to church every Sunday. These are the clothes that we wear. This is the music that we embrace. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. But if it's not rooted around Jesus Christ, if it's not around a true transformative relationship with Jesus Christ, our children can keep swimming around a fishbowl of culture. And then they suddenly, one day, they get plicked they get plucked up and put in another fishbowl, and we wonder why they wipe out. We wonder why they wander away entirely from the faith. It's because the fish never got changed. We just did a really good job creating the fishbowl. We did a really good job making sure they knew what not to do in never really truly understanding who to embrace and to be transformed by. We cannot be marked more by culture than by Christ. We cannot be, by, be marked more by reactionary social views than by a relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Beware, these Jews had a cultural prejudice against in, um, uh, 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 being around or in fellowship with the Gentiles that really was hindering them. So we see here a dispute. It was a theological dispute. It was a practical dispute. It was ultimately a cultural dispute. And secondly, we should see here a departure. One of the most surprising aspects of this entire story is that Peter was in the middle of it. Peter, the apostle. Peter, the one who was known for such boldness at Pentecost. Peter, the one who was willing to socialize with the Gentiles when the Jews weren't around, when the, when the James party wasn't there. Peter? Why was it such an important and surprising departure? Well, it was because Peter knew the truth. That's why it's so surprising. Peter knew the truth. You say, how do you know he knew the truth? Well, go back to Acts chapter 10. What happened in Acts chapter 10? Peter was the one who God gifted to open the door of repentance to the Gentiles. Do you remember when Peter was going to be sent to Cornelius, to a man who wasn't a Jew, who was a Roman, and to prepare Peter for this transformational opportunity, God sent him a vision in which he sent down a a, a, a sheet from the, in, this, in this dramatic vision and there were all these unclean animals and Peter said, no, I, I could never eat that. And, and God says to him in, in a kind of life verse for me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Uh, uh, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And look, and he looks at this and, and God is getting through to him. No, what I have cleansed, don't you dare call common. And what did Peter do? Ah, oh. And then they come from Cornelius' house, and he goes with them, and he fellowships with them. 
he undoubtedly would have eaten with them. And in fact, when the Judaizers in Jerusalem, we just read in Acts chapter 11, said, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. Peter didn't say, Oh, I'm sorry, my bad, I got it wrong. Peter stood boldly and said, No, you got to see what God did to these Gentiles. So Peter knew better. He knew that it wasn't wrong for him to fellowship with Gentiles. Not only that, it was not just that he knew better, it was that he was acting like a hypocrite. Notice what Paul says here. Verse 12, For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. And that word dissimulation literally means hypocrisy. Other members were carried away with their hypocrisy. What was their hypocrisy? It was that they were willing to eat and fellowship with Gentiles when the, Jewish, when the Jews weren't around. But when they were around, oh, I can't offend. I'm going to need to change the way that I'm acting toward them. It was, as the word means, being a stage actor. They were willing, Peter was willing for that period of time to play a role, to play a part, to wear a mask. It was hypocrisy, and notice it was rooted in fear. Why did he do it? He separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. What was he afraid of? Probably their controversy, their criticism, their perhaps connection back to the mother church in Jerusalem. Can you imagine Peter, a man who was afraid? Well, yes, you can. Because Peter was the one who walked on water toward Jesus, and when he looked at the waves, he got really scared. Peter was the one before the death of Christ who was terrified of a little servant girl and denied Jesus. You see, there's a lesson here for us. The same sins that we are known for, that, our, that are our feet of clay, can keep on coming back in surprising areas that we think, oh, I, I had that one licked. I had that one beat. Even Peter, the apostle, is at his core just a man. And here, in an, another reaction of fear, he takes this step of separation. And notice what it became the other Jews dissembled likewise with him insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Friends, Barnabas, Barnabas. Barnabas was the one who had helped found this church. Barnabas was the one with an overwhelming heart of love and an overwhelming sympathetic spirit. Do you know where Barnabas is? When, when you see Barnabas in the Bible, he's encouraging people. He's comforting people. He's strengthening people. Barnabas was the kind of guy you can just tell who would come up and put his arm around you when you were having a tough time and said, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Barnabas, this magnanimous, open-hearted guy, he starts separating too. It was his church. He loved these people, and he did the same thing. You say, what was Barnabas thinking? I don't know, but sometimes I identify with Barnabas a little bit, and do you know what I suspect was going on? He just didn't want to fight. Barnabas just seemed like one of those soft-hearted people. He just wants to be friends with people. He just wants to get along. He just wants to connect. He wants everything to be going well. And you know what? I'm sure he just said, you know what? I know these Judaizers aren't right. But, you know, do we really need to fight about it now? Do we really need a controversy? 
And so he went along. And so now you have this great rift in this diverse, thriving Gentile church. The Jews eating over there, the Gentiles eating over there. In fact, some have suggested that Peter may even have been withholding the Lord's Supper from the Gentiles. Again, we don't know for sure, but we do know they were not having fellowship. They were isolated and separated. Now, how does Paul react? Paul sees, thirdly, the danger. The danger. Notice Paul. Paul doesn't immediately strike me as the kind of guy who'd come up and put his arm around you when you were having a hard time. Paul sometimes feels like the kind of guy who would tell you where you needed to grow in a couple areas when you were having a tough time. That's actually why probably Paul and Barnabas were a good pair. And why, in fact, in a plurality of elders, which we believe is the biblical model, it's very good to have people of different kinds of personalities, to have people with different kinds of views and strengths to to, uh, help encourage each other in these ways. But notice what Peter says. When Peter was come to Antioch, verse 11, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And now notice verse 14. This is really where I want us to to pause on on this last point. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly, do you know the idea here is that they are, there's a, a gospel line that they were to walk and they had, they had strayed from it. They weren't walking the gospel line. In other words, Paul saw that this was a gospel issue. This was not an issue where he just needed to come to the Judaizers and say, Judaizers, can you be kind? Can you be loving? Can you be flexible? Can you be sensitive? No, Paul had no time for that. Paul was saying to them, you're getting the gospel wrong. Your separation over culture, over extra-biblical issues is flatly about the gospel. They weren't living the implications of the gospel. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say that? Go on to notice what he says next. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews. Now, pause there for just a minute. What is that telling us about how the way Peter lived? Did Peter keep the ceremonial Old Testament law? No. Peter himself didn't keep the ceremonial Old Testament law. Paul looked at him and said, you don't do it. Do you think any of the Judaizers raised their eyebrows at that point in the conversation? Whoa. Didn't really know that. What do you think Peter felt like? Exposed? Peter, you don't even live like a Jew. You live like a Gentile. You don't follow dietary customs. So notice what he says. Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? If you don't even live like a Jew, why are you trying to make the Gentiles live like the Jews? And now at this point in the conversation, I wonder if, Paul, if Peter's self-defense mechanism was kicking in. Well, time out, Paul. I'm not trying to make the Gentiles live like the Jews. I never told them they couldn't be saved. I never said that they couldn't be a member of the church if they weren't circumcised. All I did was I didn't fellowship with them. I didn't eat with them. That's not about the gospel, uh, Paul. What would Paul have responded? 
Why is Paul saying, Peter, you are making them live like the Jews? Because of this. It goes to the heart of what Christian fellowship is. It goes to the heart about what it is to be one body and one spirit. It goes to the heart of what it means to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because those Gentiles had effectively two options. They could either say, I don't care about this church. We're going elsewhere if that's going to be the way it is. Or they had one other option. What was the one other option? I guess I'm getting circumcised. I guess I'm good. If, if, I'm, if this is required for us to live in one church body and be unified together and have fellowship with the Jews, I guess I'm just going to have to submit to the law of Moses. And because Paul knew that, he said, what you're really doing by breaking fellowship with these people over these issues is you are compelling them to live like Jews when, Peter, you know full well you don't even live like that because you know the gospel, Peter. You know that you're not saved by living like a Jew. You know you're not saved by being circumcised. You know you're not saved by living according to the ceremonial customs. Peter, you know you're saved only by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else, period, full stop. Peter was violating the implications of the gospel because he was conditioning fellowship with other Christians based on what was unnecessary to their walking in right relationship with God. He was basing it on his fear, his hip hypocritical fear, based on culture, not on the gospel. And friends, this is where we can immediately point ourselves to a broader principle, and it is this. When you and I break fellowship with other Christians, with true believers, based not on the Bible, based not on the gospel, but on cultural considerations, based on our own extra-biblical preferences and views, we are violating the implications of the gospel. That's what this is saying. When we are basing our relationships with other Christians, not based on whether they're walking according to the truth of the Bible, let's be clear. Paul is, 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 is expressed in 2 Thessalonians 3 and in other places that when people are violating the clear commands of Scripture, they are to be, we are to separate from them. We are to say, we may not fellowship with you as long as you are living that or you are teaching that. We're, I'm not saying anything against biblical separation, which we teach here at Straight Gate Church. I'm talking about these Judaizers who were relying on something cultural, on something extra-biblical that was not rooted in the word of God. And as a result of what they were practicing, they were violating the very truth of the gospel that Paul was preaching. And that's why he confronted Peter to his face publicly. He said, this cannot stand because this is a gospel issue. Whenever we make a test of fellowship based on cultural, extra-biblical issues, we are implicating the gospel and we are violating its path and its truth for us. You see, why is that the case? Why is that? It's not just rooted in who we are in Christ, though that's the fundamental issue. We can add nothing to the salvation that is in Christ. But it also goes back to what happened when you and I became Christians. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, will you? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one book back and only a few chapters over. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of the most famous verses in all of our Bible, but we don't always pay attention enough to the context. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He'd say, what a wonderful promise that is. What a wonderful thing about my new life in Christ. And it is, in a sense, about your new life in Christ. But do you see that the first word of that verse is therefore? Therefore, if any man be in Christ. Go back one verse. Wherefore, henceforth, from now on, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. What are they saying? They're saying, we don't know Jesus as a Jew anymore. We don't know him as a human being, if you will, in his cultural, physical characteristics. That is not the basis of our relationship with Christ. Not only that, we know no one after those cultural, physical characteristics anymore. Why? Because he died for us, and therefore we died with him. We have died into him. And what does it say then? Therefore, because we don't know any man after their cultural and physical characteristics anymore, therefore, if any man be in Christ, <coughs> he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Like what? In a real sense, like your ethnicity, like your race, like your sex, like your cultural characteristics. We don't know any man after the flesh anymore because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is in Christ and he is something new, which tells me that when these Judaizers and Peter coming into them was looking at Gentiles and saying, you're Gentiles, we're not fellowshipping with you because of that, what were they doing? They were ignoring the new creation that those Gentiles had been brought into in Jesus Christ and they had been violating the very implications of the gospel that they were professing for themselves. Now, what does this mean for us? It means, I think, a couple things. One, we need to recognize that if Paul, I'm sorry, if Peter and Barnabas fell into this temptation to allow cultural and extra-biblical things to separate our fellowship from other fellow Christians, how much more us how much more might we fall into the same trap if Peter and Barnabas fell into that trap? How much more can we allow our own cultural prejudices in very sometimes subtle ways to affect who we fellowship with, who we embrace into our lives? Friends, I, I would just ask this, not to point a finger in any way, but I would ask you, when is the last time you have truly embraced into your home for fellowship, someone who is massively culturally different than you are. I don't mean someone who has a different skin color who comes to this church for a long time and is fully a part of our church culture. I mean, I mean very different culturally than you are. Now, if we haven't for as long as we can remember, we might ask ourselves, is there some form of cultural prejudice that is affecting my ability to fellowship with people who are very different from me in this city. 
Is there some form of cultural blind spot that I have that is affecting my ability to unite truly and openly with other Christians in areas that is the direct implication of the gospel? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. It should place in our hearts, I hope, some humility to search for our own blind spots in cultural areas, racial areas, ethnic areas, in which we might ourselves have a blind spot, in which we ourselves might not be living out the implications of the gospel. But there's one other, I think, really significant implication that extends far beyond even the implications of the gospel on the fellowship with other people. It is something about Peter. Peter knew the truth, but he was controlled by fear. In other words, Peter knew the truth of the gospel in his head. But in his heart, he wasn't controlled by it. He was controlled by a fear of man. And the simple point is this. If we're going to overcome our own cultural and social prejudices, if we're going to truly embrace a one spirit, one body relationship with Christians across a diverse set of cultures, it's going to require a kind of gospel that leaves our heads and fully occupies our hearts, that becomes the motivating force for how we live. Because the same kind of fear that, it, that entered into Peter, if you will, that sprung up in Peter and allowed him to ignore what he knew intellectually in favor of what he would rather live experientially, we're going to need the gospel to make the same progress. I love what Martin Luther said in his commentary on Galatians. He was speaking of the gospel as being Jesus Christ dying for me and nothing that I can add to this. And listen to what he says on this. He says, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. He says, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, the gospel, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Beat the gospel into their heads continually. Why? Because you need to know it intellectually? No. Because we need to have it beat into our heads over and over and over again who we are in Christ before it reaches our hearts, before it touches our affections, before it begins to affect our motivations and our intentions to live out the gospel out of the true sincere desire of our hearts, not just out of what we have learned from little children, perhaps, intellectually. The implications of the gospel are real in this city of Minneapolis, just like they were in Antioch. Just like Peter and Barnabas, our fellowship with believers in this city can be affected by our cultural prejudices and by our extra-biblical motivations. And if we are going to live out the implications of the gospel... We're going to have to know the gospel. We're going to have to love the gospel. And we're going to have to have it in our hearts, sending out in love and fellowship for those who are around us. There's one more question. How do we know when our prejudices or when our actions are based not on our cultural prejudices, but instead on the word of God? How do we know when we do need to separate 
over issues that may appear to be cultural. Lord willing, we'll look at that topic next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is real and that it is true. Thank you that it is honest. Thank you that it is willing to pull back the curtain on failures of great men, greater than us, like Peter and like Barnabas. And I pray, Father, that we would learn from their mistakes, that we would be humble to our own mistakes, and that we would be sensitive to the working of your spirit and to the implications of your gospel.